Are we alone in the universe? Perhaps more importantly, is our universe alone in the universe? Sounds like it's time for episode 47 of Pop Art, the podcast where my guest chooses a movie from popular culture, and I'll select a film from the more art classic indie side of cinema with a connection to it. I am your, with great ability comes great accountability, host, Howard Kastner. Today, I'm happy to welcome as my guest, Hollywood Hyphenate, writer, director, producer, Keith Hartman, who has chosen the exciting and innovative animated film, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. And I've chosen the low-budget indie film and first feature from James Ward Burkett, Coherence, both movies with plots containing parallel universes. To begin, Keith, why don't you tell our audience something about yourself? I'm kind of an odd duck. I started off writing science fiction novels, did that for years, had a lot of fun with it, loved going out to conventions, hang out with fans, and at one point decided, you know, I want to make movies. So I came out to Hollywood, and I wound up writing and directing a series of indie gay comedies. That was a lot of fun for a number of years. The films were commercially successful, and they won a bunch of awards. But a few years ago, the indie distribution scene started to change a lot, so I had to kind of stop making movies the way I was making them. So now I'm going back to writing novels. And it's kind of an open question whether I'll get to make another movie again. Well, let's hope you do. You know, sitting around writing novels is not a bad job. I could be perfectly right. happy doing this. Well, with that, let's get to your selection. And that is Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. First, some information about the film. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is an American film released in 2018. It was directed by Bob Perchetti, Peter Ramsey, and Rodney Rothman from a screenplay by Phil Lord and Rothman based on the Marvel Comics character Miles Morales. It stars Shamik Moore, Jake Johnson, Chris Pine, Haley Steinfeld, Mahershala Ali, Brian Tyree Henry, Lily Tomlin, Luna Lauren Velez, Zoe Kravitz, John Mulaney, Kamiko Glenn, Nicholas Cage, Katherine Hahn, and Liv Schreiber. The story revolves around Miles Morales, a black teenage tagger who finds his life that is already complicated enough by having to go to an elite boarding school, becoming more complicated when he is bitten by a radioactive spider, gaining the same powers as the already existing Spider-Man. But wait, there's more. When guest villain Kingpin, with help by his lead scientist Dr. Octavius, tries to open the multiverse in order to replace his wife and child who have passed away, he kills Spider-Man while allowing various spider people, plus a pig, of other parallel universes to enter Morales's. So while Morales must learn to become the new Spider-Man of his universe, tutored by a Spider-Man whose life has become something of a failure, they must join together to stop Kingpin from destroying the world while allowing them to return to their own respective homes. Why did you choose this film? First off, I was lucky enough to have the absolutely perfect way to see this movie for the first time. I saw it with my little six-year-old nephew, Jack. We're sitting there in the movie theater, and 60 seconds into the movie, Jack is already jumping up and down in his chair going, oh my god, oh my god, this is so exciting, I can't believe this is happening. And the funny thing is, is I'm sitting right next to him, and I'm also jumping up and down in my chair going, oh my god, oh my god, this is so cool, I can't believe they did that, I can't believe they did that. So this is always a sentimental favorite of mine. I love the movie from that experience. It is just a joy to watch. It like takes off like a rocket right from the very start of the movie it catches your attention and holds it. It's also a really inventive film. Looks different than any other animated film I've seen. They take some chances with the way they tell the story. There's just a lot of cool things I hadn't seen done before in this movie. And it's one of those movies where you can really tell the filmmakers are just taking a lot of chances and swinging for the fences with every single scene. And more often than not, they're getting a home run. It's not a perfect film. I like the first half of the movie a lot better than I like the second half, but it's a really fun, enjoyable movie. 
Do you think it still holds up? Yes, I just watched it again two days ago for this, and I'm like, oh, I'd forgotten how good some of these scenes are. There are moments of pure joy in this movie that I don't think I've felt since I saw Star Wars for the first time as a kid. I saw it like you did when it first came out, though without a six-year-old. I'm uh, telling you, the six-year-old makes it. <laughs> Brett one. I did not really want to see it. I wasn't really? excited about seeing it because it was a cartoon Spider-Man. I'm a little older than you. I grew up with all these Saturday morning cartoons of Marvel comics and everything like that. They were always cheesy. So I thought, why do I want to see a cheesy Spider-Man cartoon? Then it started winning all the Critics Awards. It won the New York Film Critics Awards. It won the National Society of Film Critics. So I went, well, I guess I have to see this. And I, like you, was blown away. Oh, I'm so glad. I just was overwhelmed by it from the very beginning. It was, yes, imaginative, clever, smart, incredibly well-written. I see a lot of the Marvel movies. I don't see as many of the DC because I find the DC films, to be honest, except for the first Wonder Woman and then The Dark Knight. I haven't liked any of them. Yeah, but that's the whole Marvel-DC divide. Marvel has much more flawed characters with human problems in DC is more we have young gods who are rising above everything. Right. So that's why I always like the Marvel Universe yeah. better. I still like the Marvel Universe better. This is perhaps my second or third favorite Marvel movie. My first is Logan, which I don't think I will ever forget. That bothered me in a way that I'm not sure comic book movies should bother you, but it really upset me. And then Thor Ragnarok. This is definitely among the top three, top five of all the Marvel comic book movies I've ever seen. But now I have to ask you a very difficult question because I'm not even sure how I can particularly answer it. What are some of your favorite scenes? Basically, every time they have a scene that starts, let's do this for the last time. Oh, that's right. Because they take one of the core problems of comic book movies, which is the origin story. We've all seen Spider-Man bitten by this radioactive spider 20 times in our lives by now. We've all seen Superman get thrown in that pod away from Krypton as it explodes a million times. We're all bored with origin stories. And they totally turn it on their ear and turn it into something amazing and fun. Every one of his origin stories is just solid gold, in my opinion. I like it when they go one after the other. One more time. Exactly. And also, like, first moment when you see Spider-Woman, there's a lot of subtle stuff going on with the way they put the movie together in terms of the way the camera angles and their editing to music. It's all put together so well. And man, when Spider-Woman turns up in that movie... Oh my God, it's just so freaking cool. And I love the history of the Spider-Man whose life doesn't turn out too well. But at least the first two alternate Spider-Man have really interesting problems that are stated very concisely. One of them got to be an older guy and just made a lot of bad life choices and fell off the wagon. Spider-Woman has this thing where she just does not have friends anymore because everybody she likes dies. They're damaged characters and you want them to be happy, you want them to figure it out, and you're invested in them from the minute they get on the screen. I also love all those origin stories, but this is a movie like uh, quite a few that we've had on the podcast recently where when you say, what is your favorite scene? And your real response is sort of all of them. But I very much admired a lot of the throwaway humor and the one-liners. Yeah, there's a lot of good humor in this movie. One is, as Octavius, when someone says, I suppose all your friends call you <laughs> Doc Ock. And she says, no, my friends call me Liv. My enemies call me Doc Ock. And then they get to Aunt May's house with Lily Tomlin. And Lily Tomlin says, oh, hi, Liv. Yeah. 
when Spider-Man is going through the plan and at the very end says, I get a bagel. Yeah. That's the end of the plan. And then when he does it, he does get a bagel and someone yells out, stop him. He's stealing he a, a bagel. bagel. That's delightful. Listen, John Mulroney's wonderful line, do animals talk here? If they don't, I just don't want to freak this guy out. There's a lot of funny stuff in this film. But as there should be in a Spider-Man film, one of the things with Spider-Man from the comic books is he's this wisecracking character who masks all his pain with all his funny banter. A lot of times they don't quite bring that to the movie. So it was nice to see that here. You were talking about that the second half for you doesn't quite work as well as the first half. Let's talk about that. Basically, the first half of the movie is gritty reality for a comic book. Everybody's got serious problems. People are dying. The stakes are pretty high. And all the characters are very well drawn and realistic, at least comic book realistic. There's this one moment in the middle of the film, and it starts off with a small quibble. They go and they see Aunt May. Apparently in this universe, Aunt May is a full-on partner to Spider-Man. She maintains his equipment, builds his stuff, but they go into her secret lair. And I'm thinking, oh, cool, she's going to have a base in her basement or something. No, she's got an entire Avengers-style, multi-billion dollar base under her house. Ten stories tall, and you're like, Aunt May in her tiny house in Queens, who's living on a fixed income, somehow built a ten... Okay, I'm not going to overthink it, but this is the first time in the movie that I've hit an odd note where something went wrong that happened in mission impossible for me when they yeah. go, go down below the seine and there's this huge lab under there are you saying nobody noticed that they the did this huge thing underground what? by the seine no. exactly and it's a missed opportunity if you had gone down and aunt may in her tiny little basement had built a really cool spider layer it would have been oh man that's awesome i wish my aunt was that cool and instead it's just this odd moment of where did this billion dollar super base come from it's weirdly out of character but then the next thing that happens is they introduce the next three Spider-Men. This is sort of odd, because on the one hand, I love these guys. They're really cool. And on the other hand, they kind of screw up the movie. The next three Spider-Men are a female Japanimation character who's drawn like a Japanimation character with the eyes that turn into hearts and the emoticons all around her and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. There's a black and white one whose whole thing is he's drawn in black and white. You want to know more about him, but his whole thing is he's black and white. And then there's Spider-Ham. This is the thing my nephew just loved. Every second Spider-Ham was on the screen, he was ecstatic. And I like the concept of Spider-Ham, but it makes it impossible to take the rest of the movie seriously when you've got a Warner Brothers character walking around. When I first saw him, I was like, oh, this movie just made a really big tonal change. I wonder how they're going to pull it off. It could be the next Who Framed Roger right. Rabbit. And it isn't. They can never figure out how to square people are dying and the stakes are high and we've got a talking pig from Warner Brothers cartoon wandering through the scenes. Those three characters have no personalities and have no character arcs. The first four Spider-Men we see, including the one who dies, all have very established personalities. I wish they just stuck with the three characters and gone on with them because they were so much more interesting than the ones they introduce. I certainly do see your point. Those three are not drawn with the same depth as yeah. the others. I may slightly disagree with you in a couple of areas. Go ahead. I think if John Mulaney had not been voicing the pig, I think that helps get the pig across. It's really dependent on John Mulaney. And what is his last line? That's all, folks. And yeah. the other person says, wait, can we say that? Isn't that copyrighted? And yeah. I would love to see a comic book of Spider-Man Noir. Theoretically, his through line should have had something to do with Femme Fatale, but they don't do anything with that. Right. It could be that also there's so much going on that most people probably don't really notice that. But I think that's a very good observation. Yes, I would totally watch a separate movie for each of these characters. Well, who is your favorite character in the movie? Because mine actually is, even though I take your point, I just love the Spider-Man noir. But I am such a huge film noir fan. <laughs> yeah, he's this hint of a really great character that we never get to see. 
But who's your favorite? Really torn between Spider-Woman as Gwen Stacy, who is just cool and interesting and damaged. Washed up old Peter Parker is also so cool and interesting and damaged. I love those two every minute they're on screen. The movie also does something that the Marvel Universe does, but the DC Universe doesn't do, at least when I was reading comic books in the 60s, because I stopped reading comic books somewhere in the late 60s. One critic once said that the difference between the Marvel Universe and the DC Universe is that not only in the Marvel Universe are the heroes conflicted, but so are the bad guys. And here we have this bad guy, Kingpin, who is willing to destroy the world, but he's doing it to get his wife and son back. Yeah. That makes him very different to me than a DC villain. Yeah, it's a much more interesting villain plot than I'm just out to take over the world or destroy it. I'm trying to get my family back in this insanely messed up supervillain way. Now, what people usually talk about when it comes to this film is the look of the film. It is so cool. Part of what they do is they bring comic book visual language into the animated world. They start off fairly subtly, but after Miles Morales gets bitten by the spider, all of a sudden he starts having thought bubbles. You start seeing his thoughts appearing above his head in text. There's just the way they put sequences together where it looks like comic book panels flying by, and they're having a lot of fun with it. I would really have to sit down and analyze it, but there's some really smart stuff they're doing in the way they're choosing camera angles, and then how are we moving the angle of the camera, and then how that is interacting with the music. So it's all coming together in this really intense rush that gives you a very strong emotional reaction to scenes. Some of the fight scenes are really scary. I normally don't get scared in a movie. It's like, oh my gosh, bad things could happen right now. Visually, this thing is a treat. It's, of course, a mixture of CGI and hand-drawn. Oh, there's hand-drawn in this. I didn't realize that. Yes, it's a mixture of both. And you do talk about the angles. It is hard to imagine that until, I can't remember whether it's 70s or the 80s, like with the great mouse detective, you couldn't make an animated feature or a cartoon where it looked like the camera was moving. Yeah. That's something that only came with CGI. And they make fantastic use of it here. Right. And I do like also the panels and the writing and the text and things of that nature. It just looks incredible. It's one of the most imaginative uses of animation I've seen in some time. But it doesn't just look incredible, but it also gives you this intense emotional response. So you're looking at something that's moving and changing and interacting with the music and the characters in this really complicated way. I'm just really blown away by how they put this together. I suppose now we can get into the what I call the meaning and some of the philosophy, both aesthetic and, and philosophical, of the movie, as I often do. Because I'm always bringing in philosophical aspects of pop culture. I found a lot of existentialism in this movie, as I do in all Marvel comics. One of the essences of existentialism is that you are put in an absurd situation. It makes no sense, and you have to react to it. You have to accept it, or you can deny it, but you have to accept the fact that the universe actually makes no sense. So first of all, you have a superhero die, which is what upset me about Logan. I watched Logan, I'm going, oh my God, all superheroes are dead. What is the meaning of life if superheroes can die? Here we have Spider-Man, Peter Parker, dies at the very beginning. And then all this absurd existential situations happens with multiverses and with Morales being bitten by the radioactive spider. And he has to deal with it. And he has this internal conflict about dealing with that. He's already in an existential crisis as it is by having to go to this elite boarding school where he doesn't feel like he fits in. And then at one point, Spider-Man tells him that he has to make a leap of faith. 
And existentialism, basically what you have to do is you have to say life has no meaning, therefore I'm going to choose what the meaning of life is. Kierkegaard, the theological philosopher, used the word leap of faith. That's one of the earliest uses of the term. And what it means is that at one point you have to realize that rationalism cannot explain everything. And if you're going to believe in God, then you just have to take a leap of faith and believe that he exists. And here they're using it in the context of Peter Parker telling Miles Morales, you have to take a leap of faith that you are Spider-Man. It doesn't make any sense. It's maybe not fair that you're in this situation. These multiverses don't make any sense whatsoever. But you're going to have to take a leap of faith and believe that they exist and that you are Spider-Man and that you can do something about it and that life has meaning. Wow. My only problem is I think your explanation of it was actually better than they did it in the movie. <laughs> I thought that was one of the slightly weaker things in that in the movie, Miles has a lot of issues going on that need to be resolved. And they, by the middle of the movie, they kind of get down to one thing of Miles can't control his powers. And it's the least interesting problem Miles could be having at that particular moment. Because Miles can't control his powers, somebody's going to die and he's a failure and everybody's ganging up on him. The leap of faith is what gives him the ability to control his powers, but eh, it would be much better if the leap of faith was resolving some underlying character issue. They swung for the fences and maybe got a one base hit out of that one. That's often true in popular culture. The Marvel Universe, uh, especially these last ones with Endgame and Age of Ultron, were rife with existentialism. If you want to learn about existentialism, it's a great place to start. <laughs> it's a you fun universe to play in. You won't realize that that's what you're learning about it, but that's what you're learning about it. The other issue is is the idea of postmodernism. Because in many ways, existentialism in American films reached its peak in the 60s and 70s. Then postmodernism started taking over. And then with Tarantino and the Coen brothers, we get post-postmodernism. And the difference between postmodernism and post-postmodernism is that in postmodernism, you're doing it, but you don't really realize you're doing it. <laughs> okay. In post-postmodernism, not only do you know that you're doing it, you're telling the audience that you're doing it. You're winking at the audience and saying, you know, we're both taking this very seriously and not taking it seriously. That's one of the things I love about this film is it is winking at the audience but at least for the first half, oh the stakes are high and I really care about these characters I'm glad that we're both in on what's going on but man, I'm invested in it. I feel like occasionally post-postmodernist stuff can get a little too cool you know, we're too cool to really be invested in this, if you know what I mean. Right. And I thought this movie steered clear of that beautifully. Well, that is the problem with postmodernism and post-postmodernism is that, yes, it can be, I guess you would call it isolating or alienating. It can be snarky to the point that you're like, yeah, I don't really care about anything in this movie. Right. And another aspect of postmodernism and post-postmodernism is that once existentialism died, once actually modernism died in taking over existentialism, everything from the past suddenly became equal. As I say, Shakespeare's The To Be or Not To Be soliloquy is as equal as a fart joke when it comes to creating art. They may not ultimately be equal aesthetically, right? but in creating art, they're just as valid. So there's a lot of reference to the past in postmodernism and post-postmodernism. And okay. that's what we have here as well. It references other Spider-Man things. Also, you do have Spider-Man Noir, which is now referencing film noir. Yeah, uh, I love that guy. You have the Japanese anime, and they're not hiding that from the audience. They're having fun with it. I have a quote from Lawrence Ware of the New York Times, where he says, the film manages the delicate feat of embracing its source material while also satirizing it. It allows you to have your cake and eat it too. Yeah, they get it. What I would say is if anybody has any doubt about watching this film, sit down and watch the first 90 seconds because they manage to squeeze 
the entire history of Spider-Man into 90 insanely fun seconds. It's crazy they can do it all, but they get it all into 90 seconds, and it's amazing. And they're both making fun of that, while at the same time taking it very, very seriously. They are making fun of it, but they're also reminding you why you love this character and thought he was cool in the first place. Right. I had a total nerdgasm during those first 90 seconds. And the final aspect of it is my theory okay. of where film is going to. Because once we reached the 2000s and the 2010s, aesthetically, film started stagnating. Really? From a thematic point of view. They okay. didn't really seem to have anything to say. I think that's one of the reasons why, even though we've always had remakes and reboots and franchises, I think that's one of the reasons why that became one of the biggest aspects of the 2000s, 2010s. And new filmmakers, I was waiting for the new filmmakers to come up. Everything just seems stalled. I was waiting for something to happen. But post-postmodernism is reaching an end. Every philosophy, every aesthetic movement always reaches an end. So I think it's taken a step further now. And I often say that the most important film of the 2010s was Get Out because it starts the next wave of filmmaking, and that's genre meets diversity. Interesting. That's where you're taking all these familiar genres, but you're infusing them with diversity. Yeah. Which seems to me a logical next step for post-postmodernism. You have things like Get Out, which is horror. You have Crazy Rich Asians and Love, Simon, The Big Sick, which are rom-coms with diverse characters. You have crime with diverse characters. You have everything with diverse characters. And in comic book movies, you have Black Panther, Wonder Woman, and you have Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Actually, never put that together, but I think you're right. And then also in other Marvel comics, you also have supporting characters, superheroes, who are also diverse. Not diverse enough. We're still working on it. I am still waiting for my first gay superhero in a mainstream role. So right. hoping that happens soon. Marvel, if you're but, listening, we're past due. Yes, but it's also it's where a lot of the new filmmakers are coming from because they're coming from diverse backgrounds and diverse cultures they're making movies and they're using familiar genres in order to do so it's like the world is just getting to be a more interesting place because the stories are being told from different backgrounds and there's just more stuff to play with well with that here's some more information about the movie it cost 90 million dollars to make and made 375.5 million dollars at the box office so it was very successful spider-man into the spider-verse won the 2019 academy award golden globe and bafta award for best animated film it was also nominated for best film at the baftas it also won the los angeles film critics association the national society of film critics and the new york film critics circle awards which is i said the reason why well i guess i gotta see it if it's going to win all those awards <laughs> Is there any word that they may be working on a sequel to it? There is word. It's listed for 2022 release. Cool. I will make sure to see it with my nephew again. An archival recording of Cliff Robertson from Spider-Man 2 was used for a flashback scene involving the character Ben Parker. Oh, is that how they got that? Yes. Oh, yes. cool. This was stand-up comedian John Mulaney's first theatrical film role. They told him to have fun with his dialogue, so he started putting four-letter words in. And after it was over, he said, oh, by the way, what is the rating for this? <laughs> they said PG-13. If you had pause any time as the train goes by, this is what I read. Because all the animators wanted to animate Stan Lee, he's in almost every single train. He's also all over the movie. It's when maybe the two Spider-Men fall on the ground and someone walks over him. That's supposed to be Stanley. Aww. One thing I didn't catch on the first time I saw it is that Miles is not in my universe. Miles is in a parallel universe. 
How, how did you pick up on that? Well, one, the writer said so. But also, there's a lot of details. For example, the one that I really noticed this time is it's PDNY instead of NYPD on the police cars. Well, you're way ahead of me. I didn't pick up on any of that, and I'm normally really good at it. Chance the Rapper's there's a three hat, has a four on it. This is on a poster in Miles' room. And there's all sorts of references to movies that have one word changed. Clone High is, I guess, Clone College in this movie. And Bridesmaids is about a baby shower. Okay, I'm now going to have to go back and watch it a third time just so I can catch all this stuff. Ah, with that, let's get to my selection, and that is Coherence. First, some information about the film. Coherence is an American indie film released in 2013. It is directed by James Ward Burkett from a screenplay by Burkett based on a story by Burkett and Alex Monogian, who also appears in the film. It stars Emily Baldoni, Maury Sterling, Nicholas Brendan, Lorraine Scafaria, Hugo Armstrong, Elizabeth Gresson, Alex Monaghan, and Lauren Maher. The story revolves around a group of eight friends gathering for a dinner party while a comet passes over. Strange things start to happen, especially after the electricity goes off and the only lights they can see are from a house down the block. But when they go to the house, things get even odder as they begin to suspect that maybe they are interacting with parallel universes. What do you think of the pairing of the two films? I get the parallel universe thing, but other than that, I did not see a lot of similarity between these two films. Well, that is the main similarity. Uh, <laughs> when did you first see the film? This is weird. I had actually never even heard of this film. Almost every time you discuss a film, even if I haven't seen it, I've at least heard of it. This one, I had completely missed. So I never watched it until you told me about it for this podcast. And what did you think of it? Let me explain how I watched it. So I got your email, and I'm like, never heard of this film. Got an IMDb to check it out. And it's like, oh, wait, it's science fiction. I love science fiction. Read a little more, and it's weird, brainy, thought-provoking science fiction even better. I am so down with this. And then I read, it's like, oh, it's done on a $50,000 budget. Well, I've shot multiple films on a $50,000 budget. I'm always interested to see how other people handle the constraints of the budget. And then as icing on the cake, it's got Nicholas Brendan in it. And I have this weird soft spot for Nicholas Brendan from his Buffy the Vampire Slayer days. And I still think he is tragically underrated as an actor. So I cannot wait to see this movie. And I sit down and I get two minutes in and I pause. I must be watching the wrong movie because this thing I'm watching seems to be like a bad home movie by somebody who can't write dialogue or hold a camera. So I go back to the IMDb and I check like, no, 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 it's the same production company. So it must be them. So I start watching the rest of the movie and man, this thing's a train wreck. I really was dumbfounded by what I was watching. Can't really say I enjoyed most of it until about two thirds of the way through. There was one moment when I experienced just 30 seconds of pure joy. There was the solution to this puzzle they had set up at the start of the movie involving this box. And you get the solution to what the box is and why it's there. And for 30 seconds, I was, oh my gosh, that is a great solution. That's smart. It's clever. I didn't see it coming. If only the filmmaker had taken the care with, with the rest of the movie that he took with this one puzzle. And then it hit me, oh no, wait. There's a fact they established in the first third of the movie that completely contradicts the solution. It can't work. And now that I'm thinking about it, there's also a timeline reason why the solution doesn't work. And then there's even like a character reason why the solution doesn't work. And one of the characters in the movie even says it out loud and points it out. So I watched the rest of the movie. But I, I am not a fan of it. Well, we're going to have to get back to some of those issues you bring up. Yes, this might make an interesting conversation because I love yeah. the movie. I saw it when it came out. I thought this was an amazing film that all first-time filmmakers should see because of what he did, not on such a low budget, but also how he did it. And okay, how let's he talk about that, that's a critical thing to understand about this movie. It started out with him and Alex Nagia. 
They had worked together before. I think they had worked on Rango, but he had also been working on films like Pirates of the Caribbean. And it was getting to the point where he wanted to make his own film. What's he doing on those films? I actually don't know his I, backstory. I think on Rango, he was the writer. But on the other films, he was a storyboard artist. That was one of the big things he did. So he would work in the art department, visual effects and camera and electric department and things like that. And he worked on it for a year. He got this idea. He wanted it to be in only his house. And that was it. And he was going to get a group of actors together. He had the whole story outlined, and he knew what he wanted. He shot it over five days. All the dialogue is improvised. So it's it's, very much like Blair Witch Project. Right. He would give them notes. He would tell them that they had to do this by the end of this night. It caused some problems sometimes because the actors would get so into it. At one point, two of the actors are knocking, trying to get back in the house. The actors were so into it that they wouldn't let them in. And 45 minutes later, Burkett says, okay, wait, stop. You got to let them in. We have to find a way to, to let these guys in or we can't get the story going. So he had this idea and he just wanted to make a low budget film. To me, it works on so many levels and I really like it. Obviously, of course you don't, which is... Yeah, I, I should interject this point that most of the world agrees with you. I've checked the Rotten Tomatoes score on this movie and it's like an 85%, which is insanely high through the roof. There are a lot of people who love this movie. I'm just literally am dumbfounded. I cannot figure out what's going on here. So I really want to hear what you love about this movie. But I also think the story of how it was made is more interesting than the movie itself. Well, it also gets more interesting. Apparently, uh, in the final scenes when M is trying to find the world that she wants to be in at the very end is the night that the director's wife is having her baby at home. <laughs> I mean, the wife said, you can shoot here, but I am having an in-home birth, so remember that. Also, at another time, when they go outside and they go down to the other house, mm-hmm. that was very difficult to shoot because they were shooting a Snickers commercial or something on that block. <laughs> so instead of being solid black, there's all these lights around. That's the problem with shooting anything in L.A. There's always something else shooting next to you. Right. I think the acting could have been stronger. He did not get name actors or anything like that. He got people who could improvise. I think I like the acting better this time. I like the basic concept. I like this idea of they start entering other universes. They go through this black hole and they're in this other universe. And it gets to a point where you realize there are millions of such universes. As she says, you go in there and you enter a roulette wheel, but you enter a roulette wheel with millions more numbers that are on a roulette wheel. And you finally get to the point that they are never going to get back right. to their original universe. Yeah, it's frustrating when they keep trying to get back. It's like they figure out what the premise of the movie is and then they ignore the premise of the movie. I don't have so much problem with that, but I do have something connected to that. Go ahead. They don't go to a next door neighbor's house. They need a phone. No one says, well, there's a phone at the bar two blocks away. They don't drive down there. Right. Do they see, well, I don't see Los Angeles. Is all of Los Angeles. Somehow they accept too much the fact that there's this house down the block. But they ignore the fact that there doesn't seem to be anything else. Okay, here's my problem with this film is that that little quibble you're having is in every single scene 10 times. They desperately need to go use the phone because one of the characters has a brother who's a theoretical physicist who told them to call him in case something weird happens while the comet is passing overhead. Just to be clear, this brother never even gets a name. He's just always referred to as my brother, the theoretical physicist. Except you later find out his brother lives in Los Angeles and all of Los Angeles is blacked out. 
So why are you calling your brother to tell him about the blackout that he's in the middle of? It can give you almost any premise in a science fiction movie. A guy has superpowers because he's bitten by a radioactive spider. I will give you that and run with it. My problem is it's not like there's a plot hole or two in this movie. This whole movie is a set of overlapping plot holes to the extent that I don't think there's a single scene in the movie that isn't directly contradicted by what happens in a different scene. One of the problems also then, and I don't know if this will be a defense to yours, is that at some point I'm no longer sure sure what house we're at. I'm not even sure we're at the house we started at. Well, it doesn't help that he changes the rules in the middle of the film. In the first half of the film, he sets up a set of rules where clearly what you're observing is two separate universes. And then in the middle of the film, he goes, ha 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 ha, they're actually infinite universes. Well, that's nice, except it contradicts hard evidence you gave us in the first third of the film. He started off with a bad premise. And I don't mean it's unbelievable or it's hard to swallow. It's that it doesn't lead to any conflict. Basically, the characters figure out, okay, there are two parallel universes. Everybody holds up their hand and says, wait a minute, if we just stay inside and don't go out for the rest of the night, nothing bad will happen. That's not quite right. Once anybody leaves the first time, before they even know that there are parallel universes, things can never get back to normal. Well, normal in what sense? The first two people who leave and go down to the house. Never come back, right. They'll never get back to their original house. Here's the thing. By the rules that are set up, if you don't leave the house, you'll be stuck in a parallel universe that is absolutely identical to yours in every way up to about 20 minutes ago. Like there's a certain point in the film when all the parallel universes split off from each other. You will probably never even notice you're in a parallel universe. Do you care that's in some theoretical way a parallel universe? And more to the point, there's nothing you can do about it. Actually, I think that you bring up an interesting point here that I was going to cover cover later on because we talk about existentialism in the first one. Here we have existentialism in which most of the people don't accept the existentialism of the situation. You're right. They need to accept what's going on, but they don't. The only one who does is M. She's, I'm going to go with this. I understand this and I'm going to accept it, and I'm going to use it to my advantage. Except Except she makes such a tragically stupid decision that I just have no patience with her character. She literally explains, (laughs) I can't get back to my universe. There are an infinite number of them, but it's just going to bug me that the guy I'm with is a duplicate of the guy that I can't tell apart. Well, she actually goes off to find a universe where the M accepted going overseas with him. But this is actually another area that I have a problem with. Go ahead. What this movie ultimately is about, even though I do love it and I do like the premise and I think there are so many wonderful things about it. In the end, it's about a guy. It's about a woman who is unhappy in a relationship with a guy and that's what she wants to resolve. She doesn't want to resolve the existential issues that are here. She wants a guy and that disappointed me. But at the same time and adding to why I do have issues with the ending is that this seems to come out of nowhere. It's like Burkett said, gee, how am I going to end this? He painted himself into a corner. So he comes up with this ending that really doesn't have a lot to do with the rest of the movie. It doesn't really grow organically out of the movie. All of a sudden, it's about him who wants to be in a relationship with this guy. I think you're being too generous here. So (laughs) let's make something clear about M. The problem with their relationship, which they clearly establish at the start of the movie, is that her boyfriend is going overseas for three months and he wants her to commit to come visit him. And she's too indecisive to do that. Her whole thing is, wait a minute, you don't understand. I'm an unemployed ballerina. Leaving L.A. for any length of time is too big a commitment for me. If that is the key thing that's wrong in your relationship, I don't care. You two do not belong together. 
Right. And then ironically, the university does decide to settle in is the one where M actually is a successful ballerina. That's not true. Someone asked the M in that universe, are you going to have your understudy dance for you while you go overseas? In that case, they completely violated Emory Programmers and they established in the movie because they very clearly established all of these universes were one universe up until the moment the comet passed overhead. And every divergence is only the change that's happened since then. I think one thing people may like about this movie is you try and explain it and just go down infinite rabbit holes because every time you explain one thing, three other things unravel. I think it may be a little different than that. It's not that people are trying to understand it. It works for me as long as I don't try to understand it too hard. Yes. So I think you may be liking the thing that I hate about it. Kind of like that in some Dadaist sense. You may love it, but if you like movies that make sense, it's going to make you crazy. And usually I do. But when it gets to things like multiverses and quantum physics, at some point I have to give up and I have to just go with it. Here's one thing that made me crazy. So we've established the indecisive ballerina girl who can't commit to going on vacation with her boyfriend and that's the big problem in her life right now. But you get to the end of the movie and suddenly she's willing to kill to be with him. Really? You can't commit to going on a vacation with him, but you'll kill to be with him. It's a weak ending and I always thought it yeah. was a weak ending. I was always disappointed that when you have a woman in a film, her essential problem always has to be a guy. Okay, well, now I've been writing on this. What is the thing you love most about this film? What gets you excited about it? Well, I think it's the things that you don't like. <laughs> I like the concept and that they slowly realize what's going on. A lot of what happens happens before they realize what is going on. They don't know if you go through this dark hole to the other house, it's going to screw things up. And then when they start trying to figure it out and start trying to not screw it up, they just screw it up more and more because they don't know everything at first. But I also, I want to put in a plug for the actors, because I think the acting is terrible in this film, but it's not the actor's fault. It's the way they're making the movie, which I think is worth talking about, because they're trying to do the same thing that they did in Blair Witch Project, but Blair Witch Project was much smarter about it. You had a smaller number of characters, and they were off in the woods. There was a limit to what they could do. And also, because of the setup, it didn't matter what choices the actors made, because as long as they're vaguely sympathetic and sad, the audience will care when they die, and nothing they do is going to change the outcome. Although I will say, Nicholas Brendan, I really think he's underrated as an actor because as crazy as the stuff he has to do in this film is, he tries to sell it over and over again. I'm suddenly a mass murderer who's going to go kill everybody in this other house with a baseball bat? Sure, I'm going to try and sell that now. He's actually halfway believable at it. He wasn't one of my favorite scenes or perhaps my favorite scene. He was one of the central parts of that. And that is when they tell the story of what happened in Finland during an asteroid um, okay, I just have to repeat the line here. It's this one time a comet happened in Finland. But what I liked about the scene were the little things like when he says, oh, I was in Roswell. <laughs> the other person says, I love Roswell. You were in Roswell. I don't remember you in Roswell. Other things like that that they say at that point where someone doesn't look like somebody or somebody took somebody's place, somebody replaced somebody, which I thought was a very clever foreshadowing. I'm coming back to it. Nicholas Brendan is really underrated. He can take like a nothing scene that he's improving just I'm a guy to dinner party and make it interesting. And then add to that that he wasn't in Roswell. He was in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, right. which sort of adds on to that just a little bit. I do think this is a movie that new filmmakers, filmmakers who are trying to make their first film should watch because of how it got made, because it only cost $50,000 and did get critical acclaim beyond that. But I think a lot of filmmakers can learn certain aspects of how to make a low-budget film, along with things like Clerks and movies like that, how they financed it, how they shot it, how they got it done. 
But on Facebook, there was a discussion on if you're a new filmmaker, what genre should you make a film in? Generally, most people immediately say horror. And that's sort of true. Many uh, actually, of them, there are three genres, horror, gay films, or Mormon films. I will have to disagree with you on the technical aspect. Okay. Uh, gay films and Mormon films are not genres. Those are niche. Fair enough. Those are three markets that are really good for independent films, right. if you understand them. Right. But they were talking about genre, and most people immediately say horror, and that's sort of true, because if you can get a good original horror film out there, people are going to watch it. But I also said, if you can do it with the sci-fi, that's also really good, and I think can be even better. But someone said, well, you can't do sci-fi. That requires all these special effects, all this action, and all this adventure. And I gave him a list of all these sci-fi films that had nothing. Primary was also shot very cheaply, and it did quite well. And then his follow-up, Upstream Color. And you get time crimes. It's a disaster. All sorts of things where you can do if you can get the right idea. But in closing out, I think one thing you might address is it could be my imagination, but I feel like that in pop culture, both TV and film, there has been a real sudden interest in parallel universes and multiverses. And I wondered if you might want to venture as to why you think that may be. I'm not sure I have a good explanation of that. It is definitely been a thing for the last few years, particularly on like some of the TV shows, Flash and whatnot. They've really gotten into it. A lot of the DC universe on television has. I don't know. I've always found like a fascinating... Actually, if you go back to Sliders was an older one. That's necessarily a new trend. I'm thinking it may just be we're catching up with it. I think that may be it. It took a while for existentialism to hit films, and it took even longer to hit TV. It only really started hitting TV since yeah. 2000 and on. So I think that may be it. It took this long to catch up to pop culture and people who grew up. Things like Sliders, they grew up hearing about Stephen Hawking and books are being published on it. It's finally going to enter into pop culture. Yeah, and in the fact is, it's a great vehicle for storytelling because, well, I can show our world, but with a twist, and let's show you if the world is different in this way, what's going to happen? So you can explore all sorts of themes about gender or race or class in ways that you really can't do in a non-science fiction setting. Well, with that, here's more information about the film. The budget was 50000 and it made $102,617. Akilah Zoll played one copy of Emily when there were two of them in one scene. And Kelly Donovan, the real-life identical twin brother of Nicholas Brendan, played one copy of Mike when there were two of them in one scene. I did wonder how they did that. I knew he had a twin brother from a Buffy episode where they used him. So I was like, oh, glad to see they're actually making use of that. The actor who plays Amir, Alex Minogian, is also the co-writer. But he was essentially the mole who helped guide the actress in scenes if they went astray. And Lorene Scafaria, who played Lee, was just finishing writing and directing Seeking a Friend for the End of the World before she started filming this. And she's gone on to actually a nice little bit of success. And I'm going to read this because I don't know what it means. So I'm just going to read it out and let anybody who understands this go with it. The characters and by association the film use the terms for quantum coherence and decoherence exactly backwards. While the characters refer to an isolated, independent quantum state as decoherent and therefore stable, in reality, a quantum state is said to be coherent when it remains isolated in such a way. Quantum decoherence occurs when that system interacts with its environment and is no longer in its preserved coherent quantum state. Do with that what you want. (laughs) I have no idea. (laughs) 
what it means. So with that, let's start closing out. I asked you to choose a film or two to go with your choice that might interest our audience. I'm actually cheating. I picked one film to go with mine and one film to go with yours. Great. The film to go with Into the Spider-Verse is, if you want a really weird, inventive comic book hero movie, it's Kick-Ass. This mm. is another movie about a kid trying to be a superhero. It takes a lot of weird chances that pay off in bizarre ways. It's not your typical superhero movie, but it is a lot of fun. So there's Kick-Ass and there's Kick-Ass 2. I recommend them both, but don't watch them with small children. They are definitely not something right. you take your six-year-old nephew to. The film I want to recommend to go with Coherence is if you're in the mood for a really weird, thought-provoking science fiction film, there's a film from the 1970s called Zardoz. Which oh is, my God. I have it, to be honest. I left after 30 minutes. Oh my God. You missed a treat. Let me just explain something about this movie. It starts off with a giant stone head floating over a post-apocalyptic landscape and spitting out guns and is chanting, the gun is good, the penis is bad. And then it starts to get weirder. But if you stick with it, about 20 to 30 minutes into it, the weird stuff starts to coalesce into a coherent world they've built. Oh, I now understand why that giant head was there and why it was spitting out guns and what's going on. It has a really interesting philosophical point to it. This is a movie I thought about for a long time after it was over. It's a crazy science fiction movie from the 70s, but it's one I can actually say has influenced my thinking to this day. I went overboard and chose four from television and two from movies. So I'll start with the four from television. First is World on a Wire, which is Rainer Werner Fassbender's 1973 two-part sci-fi made-for-TV movie. A group of scientists have created a computer program that duplicates this world. When odd things start happening and one of the duplicated citizens kills themselves, a scientist enters the computer program. But he begins to discover that not only has this program created a computer program that duplicates that world, he can no longer be sure that the world he came from isn't a computer program itself. In the fourth episode of season two of the original Star Trek, there is an episode called Mirror, Mirror. Where oh, a yeah. yeah, a transporter malfunction inadvertently swaps Kirk and his team with Kirk and a team from a parallel universe. But this universe is made up of barbarians whose mission is to conquest and murder. The Man in the High Castle is oh, a, yeah. Yeah, it's a 2015 television series based on the novel by Philip K. Dick in which Germany and Hitler won the war. And one of my favorite television series, Rick and Morty, in which Rick, a nihilistic scientist, and his good-hearted grandson, Morty, travel not just their universe, but others as well. And they do something that they do in coherence. At one point, the universe that Rick and Morty is in is completely destroyed. So they go from universe and universe and universe until they reach a universe where just as they get there, the Rick and Morty in that universe are completely killed and destroyed. And they just take their place and go on with their life. And I thought, is this the meaning of life? Your universe is destroyed. You just go on and you find some Rick and Morty who get killed and you just take their place and go on. It's so, a plan. And then two movies. And these really aren't parallel universe or multiverse movies, though they often get listed. Maybe you'd call them multiverse adjacent movies. The first is Blind Chance, Christoph Koslowski's 1967 Polish film that shows what happens to a young man running after a train in three separate storylines. One in which he makes the train and two in which he doesn't, but all three have different outcomes to his life. This was later remade as Sliding Doors, Blind Chances, one of the great movies. Similar to this is Tom Twyker's 1998 German film, Run Lola Run, in which a young, oh, woman, yeah. in which a young woman tries to help her boyfriend who has left drug money he owes to the mob on a subway. The story 
Mary is shown three times dramatizing what happens if she is off just a few seconds for each episode. So what is next? What should we be looking for from you? So basically, I'm getting back to science fiction writing. I've got a novel coming out later this year called Confessions of a Former Teen Superhero. Where can people find this? All my books are on Amazon. All my movies are on Amazon. Oh, fantastic. With me, I'll go through my usual litany. I'm a screenwriter and script consultant. So I have a Howard Kastner screenwriting Facebook consultation page. I have a blog called Rantings and Ravings, where I talk about issues concerning screenwriting and movies. I've published two books of short stories on Amazon, The Starving Artist and Other Stories, and The Five Corporations and One True Religion. These are sci-fi, horror, and fantasy short stories. I have published the second edition of my screenwriting book, More Rantings and Ravings of a Screenplay Reader. And I am an amateur photographer, and you can find those on Instagram. The previous podcast was with director-producer Martina Silcock, where we discussed Do the Right Thing and Les Miserables, both films about racial tensions in a single neighborhood in a single day that result in violence. The next episode will be with another Hollywood hyphenate, actor, writer, director, producer Kelly Campbell, where we will discuss two films about the love lives of female playwrights, Something's Gotta Give and Sudden Fear. And with that, I want to thank you, Keith, for being a guest on my show. Oh, thanks for putting up with me.